Thank you for listening to Christian Challenge at K-State's podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, follow us on Instagram or visit our website. Hope you enjoy this episode. So we decided this past summer, as we're praying and considering where would God want us to take the teaching ministry on Thursday nights this semester, we thought about 1 Corinthians. And so I remember back at the end of July, sitting in Blue Stem Bistro with a few of us, and we're talking about 1 Corinthians, getting anxious in that moment, thinking somebody's going to have to teach on 1 Corinthians 11. And then I, then I thought, well, that's a long ways away. I've got time, a lot of time to prepare. Well, tonight's the night. So, if you have been coming and the last three messages talking about sex and sexuality and you have not been offended, I'm so grateful. Tonight, you have another chance. <laughs> So, 1 Corinthians, we're going through is um, Paul starts off the letter in chapters 1 through 4. That first section is all about unity. And, and how we see how, how Jesus loves diversity, but not disunity. And so we talked about just the, the believers, the family of God would come together, a diverse people that would be unified under the name of Christ, that we'd we would, we would kind of throw down our rights and be unentitled and embrace the way of the cross. So that's chapters 1 through 4. We talked about unity for a few weeks. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 are about sexual immorality and the, the, the sexual ethic of the kingdom of God. So we've been, in, we've been talking about that uh, three of the last four weeks. We've we got one more message in that section that, we're, that Nate's going to talk about singleness more next week, but we're going to uh, jump in. So we're going to skip chapters 8 and 9 that talk about idols and food because we just can't do every part of 1 Corinthians, but we're going to now hit chapters 11 through 14. And 11 through 14 of 1 Corinthians talk about corporate worship and practices in the corporate worship gathering. So, so I want to do something a little different. This is a a really complicated passage of scripture that we're going to be in. There's been a lot of, of books written about this. There's a, a lot of, uh, I've listened to, to hours and hours of lecture on this. I've listened to messages on this. I've read books on this. I've consulted several commentaries on There's a lot written about it. And we don't have time to talk about all of every, every conversation going on about 1 Corinthians 11. But what I want to do is kind of, I know there's a lot of people in this room, but I want to pretend like we're, we're in my living room, and I want to just try to lead you through a Bible study on this passage. So that's what we're going to do. So let's start off just reading it. So if, you've, if, you're, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with it, here we go. We're going to read it. I'm going to circle one of the key words in the passage as we read. So Paul says, now I praise you. So again, the context here, we, we, he's just introducing a new section of the letter. And by the way, one of the challenging things about, about 1 Corinthians is that more so than maybe any other book in the Bible is that Paul is writing in response to reports that he's heard. And he's also writing in response to questions that the Corinthian church had written to him about. So he jumps from topic to topic answering questions 
or answering reports. And so I've heard it described this way, that, that when you're studying 1 Corinthians, it's kind of like you're listening to one side of the phone call, and to understand, to have a great understanding of the text, you have to piece together what's being said on the other end. So part of the, the issue with 1 Corinthians 11 is trying to piece together what's going on on the other end. Okay, let's read it. Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Can you read this back there? Does it need to be bigger? Jim says bigger. Is that better? No, I don't, I don't have room to write. There. There we go. <laughs> Try there. But I want you to know that Christ is the head, that's not what I want, Christ, sorry, be patient with me here, there we go, Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, God is the head of Christ, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So to woman is the glory of man, for man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. So, there's a lot going on in this passage. <laughs> and there's a lot of interpretations, and every interpretation has multiple questions. So we are not going to be able to unpack all that. There's a, Mike Winger has a, has a YouTube video on this passage that's almost seven hours long. I've watched it twice, uh, taking notes. Or I've watched it about one and a half times, I guess. It's, and it's, it's really good. Mo- about six hours of it's really good. Um, <laughs> so, but I do think there's some very core, easy to see truths that I hope that when we see them tonight, it'll help us understand. And I think there's huge, massive relevancy for you and I today in Kansas in 2023 from this passage. So we're going to walk through it again and... Um, Try to put it together. So, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So Paul starts off this new section on corporate worship saying, hey, you're doing a good job in remembering the things that I talked about with you. It's one of the only times 
outside of the introduction to the letter that he actually praises the Corinthians. Then verse 3, but I want you to know. And so this is like Paul saying, hey, Robbie, I really appreciate you, but that's what's going on here. And so Paul's getting ready to rebuke the Corinthians for some of their worship practices. And verse 3 is the key key verse in this passage to understand it. Verse 3, what we're trying to do when we come to the Bible is, is discover what are the timeless truths, the timeless principles, the theological truths in the passage, especially when we come to something like this that is so confusing, just like, God, what is the your eternal principle in here that we need to really pay attention to? And we find two of those here in verse 3. And the first one, and by the way, I, I, I've... Um, so much of what I'm going to say tonight, I've heard other people say, and just or, or I've read or something, and so um, I don't want to plagiarize, but I don't know how to attribute everything to every person that I've read, but I, I, one person that's helped me a lot is David Platt, so I'll just say that. Um, he, he's got a good two, he's, he, he gets two messages with this, but anyway, so two truths that we get in verse three. I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of the woman, and Christ is the head of God. And the first truth that we get here is that men and women are equal in honor and dignity. So where do I get that? If this verse just had the first two phrases, Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of every woman, we might be, be, interpret that as that men are superior to women, because Christ is definitely superior to us. But there's three phrases, and the third phrase says God is the head of Christ, and God is not superior to Christ. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, three parts of the Trinity that are all equal. They're all one, playing different roles. And so because of how this is written, we see that, that man and woman, when they're compared to Christ and God, we see that means man and woman are equal in dignity and equal in honor and value. That's the first theological truth in this passage. So, with that truth, what I want to say to you, and I want you to, to listen to me, young women. If you have ever felt lesser than because you're a woman, whether that be in church, in challenge, in any environment, if you've ever felt lesser than because you're a woman, that message did not come from God. Same is true with men. If you've ever felt lesser than because you're a man, that message did not come from God. We, men and women, are equal in honor and dignity. Second, second theological truth in verse 3 is that men and women are different in role. What does it mean that man is the head of the woman? <laughs> the word for man, I'm going to tell you the Greek words here. The word for man is aner, 
The word for woman is gune. I'm sure that's where we get gynecology from. It's gune, aner. Okay, that's important because in Greek, the word for man and woman is also, the words aner and gune can also be translated as husband and wife. And so there's different translations translate this, these words differently in 1 Corinthians 11. If you're reading the ESV, it's going to say husband and wife. I'm using the CSV, it says man and woman. I think there's good reasoning to use both. But what I want you to pay attention to is the number. Pay attention to the number. So I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. Every man is plural. And the man, the man, singular, is the head of the woman, singular. So I think, and, and gune and aner can be translated husband and wife. I think this makes a lot of sense that it would be talking about husband and wife. So we know from this passage that singular man, singular woman, so you're not, as a man, you're not the head of every woman. That's to, to misapply, to misread this. If one of you guys went up to my wife, Gail, and said you were her head, you and I would have a problem. You are not her head. You're not the head of any woman in here unless you're married to her. The other reason why I think it's good to translate it as husband and wife is because we see this same language, that work, in Ephesians 5. So in Ephesians 5, verse 22 and 23, wives submit to your husbands as the Lord. So Paul's talking about marriage in Ephesians 5. It's the famous teaching on marriage. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord because the husband, here it is, is the husband, by the way, the husband word here is the word aner, is the head of the wife. The wife word here is gune. Same words as 1 Corinthians 11. Same phrase, the husband or the man is the head of the woman as Christ is the head of the church. We get the same phrase in Ephesians 5. The only difference is in Ephesians 5, the context is talking about marriage, while in 1 Corinthians 11, the context is talking about corporate worship. And so I think it makes the most sense to understand verse 3 to be saying that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of the wife. I think that makes a, a lot of sense based on the words, the number, and the cross-reference with Ephesians 5. So, what does that mean? Well, in Genesis 2, this, this verse is hearkening back, both this verse and Ephesians 5 is hearkening back to Genesis 2, and where it talks about the difference between men and women. Now, it's important to know that Ephesians 2 is before sin ever came into the world. Before there's brokenness, there's differences already between men and women. And we see there that the man is placed in the garden to be responsible and to lead. And the woman came from his side. We're gonna, he's going to refer to that here in just a minute. To to reign with him, but to reign with him as the helper. And so, when we say that the, the head of the, that man is the head of the woman, or husband is the head of the wife, I think to understand that is that the husband is the leader of the wife, is the right way to understand that. And we see that 
Same thing in this third phrase, God is the head of Christ. That, makes, that interpretation makes sense with that phrase because the Father, God the Father, was the leader of God the Son. So that's why you see Jesus saying things in the Gospels like, not my will, but your will be done. We see Jesus submitting to the way of the Father. In fact, Jesus said, Jesus says, I only say what my Father instructs me to say. Jesus said in another place, I'm only going to do what my Father tells me to do. We see the Son being led by the Father, even though they were equal in dignity and equal in value. And so I just want to say right now that what I'm saying, I feel uncomfortable saying this. Because our culture is, is kicking against this really hard. I'm trying to just say, here's what the Bible says. Here's how I understand the Scripture. And I would rather be aligned with the Scripture than aligned with an ever-changing culture. And I will say this, too, as, as we're kind of getting into this, that to read this and to read this language, I think our culture would say, this, see, this is what I don't like about Christianity. It's outdated, it's irrelevant, and it's even oppressive. And I would just say that the more we look into the Scripture, the more we see that it is so relevant, that it is current. And truth be told, the church, the values of the kingdom of God have done more to liberate women than anything else in history. If we're being objective about it and seeing the, how God calls us to live. So, but I, but I, do, I just want to acknowledge that it is Uncomfortable. Say, okay, so those two truths, men and women are created equal, are equal in honor and dignity. Men and women are different in role. Now, Paul's going to unpack those truths as we go on. So, verses 4 through 6, this section right here. Wow, that did not work. <laughs> okay, here we go. I'm going to try this again. <laughs> Here, we're going to do this. All right. Four through six. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> okay, four through six. What we have here. Paul's given his theological truths. Verses 4 through 6, he's going to give the cultural application to those theological truths. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Dishonor. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Let her head be covered. The emphasis here is not so much on head coverings as it is on honor and shame. Disgrace dishonor, and dishonor. So 
Paul says for men not to cover their heads when they are praying or prophesying and for women to cover their heads when they are praying or prophesying, which is important to note, right? Women were praying and prophesying in the public gatherings, and Paul didn't seem to have any problem with that. That's important to note, but that'd be another, another time to talk more about that. But the reason for the command for men not to cover their heads and for women to cover their heads is that Paul's concerned with honoring Christ and how gender distinction was being carried out. See, it was common practice in the first century, as it is in other parts of the world today, for women to cover their head. And for some reason, the women in Corinth and the church began to quit doing that in the worship gatherings. And Paul writes to them and says, says that what you're doing is disgraceful. But he doesn't lead in this passage with head coverings. He leads with the theological truths that men and women are equal, but men and women are different. So here's the thing. If head coverings were a timeless truth that we should all adhere to for God's people to honor him, then when God instructed the priests in the Old Testament to wear a turban, to wear their clerical robe and wear a turban when they go into the tabernacle to worship, he would essentially be saying to do something that dishonors me in order to honor me, which doesn't make sense. So that's why we don't see that as a timeless truth. What we see here is Paul's concerned about honoring Christ and honoring the design of Christ. So after the application commands in verses 4 through 6, we're going to try this again. Paul's going to give us three apologetics. Um, He's going to give three defenses or reasons why this is a good application to these theological truths. And so the first one... The first one is 7 through 12. Sorry, it's blue. meant it to be red. I'm going to change it. It's going to bother me. Did I mess something up? Okay. So the first one, he's going to appeal to creation. So I'm trying to do this to help us understand a a complicated passage. So, all right. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman, there's that word created. He's talking about, he's referring back to Genesis 2. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. Just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. All things come from God. There is a lot going on there. That last two verses I love, though. Man and woman are not independent of each other. So Paul, he just keeps saying the same thing. Men and women are not independent of each other. They're equal. They're equal in honor. They're equal in dignity. But they're different. They're distinct. And we should celebrate that difference. We should celebrate. We should honor that distinction. So, we, we, have, a, we have a planning team that every Friday morning at, we, we get together and we talk about what was God doing on Thursday night. And we, we pray together for Thursday night. 
and we evaluate Thursday night, and we plan Thursday nights. So last Friday, we're reading through this passage, and one of the girls in our, in our team, she said, verse 7 really bothers me. She said, I don't want to be the glory of man. I want to be the glory of God. What does that mean? So, glory. I'm kind of distracted by this music. <laughs> How long are they going to keep playing? Man. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Okay. Okay, what does this mean? First of all, Paul is hearkening back to Genesis 2. All this language comes from Genesis 2. We talked about Genesis 1 and 2 last year. Uh, those messages are on YouTube if, you want, if you're really interested in this. But here's the thing. In chapter 1, every, in chapter 1 of Genesis, every time the word man is mentioned, it's referring to both men and women. Every time the word man is mentioned in chapter 1, it's the word, it can be translated as mankind. So you see this in Genesis 1 where it talks about that, that God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the way to translate man in chapter 1 is mankind. And what you have here is says men and women both created in the image of God. So men in this room, women in this room, you have been given a purpose to move through this world in the likeness of the Almighty God, to point people to God. You are an image bearer, and the evil one hates that about you, and, and he's trying so hard in America right now to destroy the image of God, and I feel like he's attacking it so much in your own heart and mind, getting, getting you to doubt yourself and getting not like, for you to not like who you are. But in chapter 1, we see both sexes created in God's image. And chapter 1, that creation story, he's comparing, he's relating mankind with creation. Then chapter 2, Every time the word man is mentioned, by the way, the Hebrew word for man is Adam or Adam. So every time Adam's mentioned in chapter 1, it's mankind. Every time Adam's mentioned in chapter 2, it's singular. It's referring to the man and then the woman, Eve. And in chapter 1, it's, it's, it's relating how does, man relate, how does mankind relate to creation. In chapter 2, it's how does man and woman relate to each other. And that's a, there's a different message in chapter 2 than chapter 1 because it's, re it's comparing different things. And in chapter 2, we see the, how, how the woman was removed from the side of Adam and how when Adam was placed in the garden, there was no suitable helper for him. And so God created the woman and brought the woman to him. That's what Paul's referring to here. So he's not saying that women are not image bearers. Other thing about this, if you go down to verse 14... You see, does not even nature itself teach you that a man, if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace? 
for him, to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. So there's the same word, glory. Now look, if I can, if you can kind of see those, the, the blue boxes, the theme, the, the tenor, the, the note of this passage, Paul, what's on Paul's heart is honor and shame. Can you see that? Honor and shame. And so when he says glory in verse 15, he's contrasting glory with disgrace, with dishonor. And that, that matches the whole passage. And so when Paul says, so, so, so a way to understand the way he's using the word glory in this passage is he's, he's using glory to talk about honor. And so verse 7 a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God is like saying, men, live your life in a way that you bring honor to Christ, to your leader, to your head. Women, live your life in such a way, be an image bearer of Christ in such a way that you're bringing honor to your husband. And again, I, I get this is really against kicking against the, the, the way of the culture. But that's, so that's how I understand verse 7. There's another kind of interesting phrase here. Because of the angels. Did you guys ever say, then I found $5? Was that a saying that you used? This is one person. And, and, and Manhattan, maybe just a Manhattan thing. Maybe just a, the youth at our church. If... A few years ago, the youth would always, then I found $5. It's just kind of like if they told a joke that didn't land or if they told a story that nobody, nobody laughed at or nobody got, they would say, then I found $5. And it kind of it like got them off the hook. It was like, oh, okay, you know. That's kind of, every time I read this, that's what it, Paul's like, wear head coverings, you don't wear head coverings, and, and the glory of God and the glory of man, and head coverings, this, head coverings, then because of the angels. And head coverings—it's kind of—it's what it kind of feels like. So, so what in the world does "because of the angels" mean? It doesn't seem to—it seems kind of random. So, again, there's a lot of there's a lot of different ideas behind this. One of them—I'm going to give you two. One of them is that the word "angel," the Greek word for angel, is "angelos," which actually means messenger in, a, in its common use. So, in its proper use, it means angel. So angelos means messenger. So, so some people think that what's going on here is that there were messengers that Paul's saying, honor each other and honor the, the design that God intended for you so that when messengers, when visitors come to your church, they're not distracted. That makes sense. The ESV has a footnote. If you have the ESV, it has a footnote and it says this could be translated as messengers. I don't think that's the right interpretation. I think angels is because the word angels is used three other times in 1 Corinthians and every one of those times it's used in the proper way as angelic beings. So here's what I think it means. We roll in here back to PowerPoint. This is my first time to do. Why is it uh, why are you seeing the whole thing? I don't that's not there we go. There we go. One of the ways that it's used, for I think God has displayed us, this is also in 1 Corinthians, the apostles in last place, like men condemned to die, we have become a spectacle to the world, both to the angels and to people. Here, Paul is saying that angels are observing what we're doing. See, the same thing in 1 Peter 1. 
Peter talks about how angels are longing to look into the story of redemption and grace. And so here's kind of what I think is going on. In, in our day, post-enlightenment, in our modern world, where everything has to have a scientific explanation, we don't really talk much about the spiritual world anymore. But in most of the world, they do. And in the first century, they did. And so when you'd read because of the angels in the first century, you'd be like, oh yeah, there's the spiritual world is like... It, like doing all kinds of stuff around us. And, and, and so even if you go back into the Old Testament, when God was giving instructions to the Israelites for how to build their tabernacle, and there was a veil that hung in the tabernacle, and God even instructed them to embroider angels in the veil so it symbolized when you come in to worship, the sin, there's angels with you. And so when Paul, what Paul, what I believe Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 11, that as you gather together, make sure you are honoring the Lord and the design of Christ because angels are present. And when we gather to worship, we can actually minister to angels because angels are interested in the grace of God. Angels are wowed by the grace of God. They long to look into these things. It's a really cool thought to think as we gather together on Thursday nights, to celebrate redemption, to celebrate freedom, to celebrate being made new. Angels have never been made new. They've never experienced grace. Ephesians 2 talks about that God's eternal plan for you that have been redeemed is you're going to be a trophy of the grace of God for all of eternity. So that angels would run to you and say, tell me, tell me, what was it like? Tell me about grace. What was it like to go from death to life, to wake up to real life with Christ? What was it like? Angels long to look into that. So I think what Paul's saying is when we gather in worship, we have a chance to minister to the angels. Next section. Verses uh, 13 through... 13 through 15, his second appeal. Uh, <laughs> okay, he's going to, um, he's appealing here to nature. So he appeals to creation, now he appeals to nature. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman To pray to God with her head uncovered, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a, it is a disgrace to him? But that, that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. So, guys, if you have long hair, are you in sin? Because Paul's appealing to nature, so does that make this a timeless truth? If we say yes to that, then the next question would be, well, how long is long? We could start bringing, I could see a scenario where we start bringing tape measures to our worship gatherings. And women shouldn't have short hair. But if he's saying that, in the Old Testament again, there was a Nazarite vow. And the Nazarites had to go through this kind of way of consecrating themselves 
to the Lord. And part of their, part of their vow was to not cut their hair. So the Nazarites had long hair. Samson was a Nazarite, actually. That's why Samson had long hair, where his strength came from. He was a Nazarite. And so if men having short hair is a timeless truth, then we would have to say that God called the Nazarites to dishonor him by having long hair in order to honor him in the Nazarite vow. So that doesn't make sense. What makes sense is that there's a timeless truth that men and women are equal in honor and dignity, but that men and women are distinct and that we should celebrate those distinctions. We should celebrate those distinctions by however those distinctions are relevant in our culture because look at creation and because look at nature. And then the third thing, he says his last appeal, uh, he says, look at tradition. He appeals to, I'm trying to go fast here, that's why my writing, my writing, I can write better than this, I promise. So, he appeals to tradition, to the churches of God. So, how do we understand this? That's the way, this is the way I kind of understand the flow of this passage. Two theological truths with a cultural application and then three arguments. One from creation, one from tradition, or one from nature, one from tradition. That's the passage. So, is it right to wear head coverings today for women and for men not to? I see a lot of caps in the room. Are you in danger of dishonoring Christ by wearing a hat into the worship gathering? I think it's certainly, there's certainly freedom to wear a head covering. And there's certainly freedom to remove your hat when you pray. I don't think that that's wrong. In fact, I think there's some good things about it. I think there's some good things to, to physically demonstrate what's going on in your heart. That's why sometimes we raise our hand in worship, why we get on our knees in worship. And I think if, if, if something's going on in your heart that you want to physically demonstrate to, to cover your head or to uncover your head, I think that's fine. I don't think it's essential. I think there's a... That's a, there's, a, there's a essential truths here in the theological principles about the distinction of men and women that are being applied culturally. So I do think also one thing to think about in this question is this passage is in the context of order in our worship gatherings. So when you're thinking about, because there's been a movement, I think, over the last few years as our culture, the gender distinctions have gotten more blurry I feel like the, the, that a lot of our churches are kind of swinging, swinging, like I want clarity so much that there's kind of been a head covering movement even. And I would just say one thing to think about is the heart of this passage is to not be disorderly in worship, to not be distracting in worship. And so you might think about is, is me wearing a hat, covering my head, what, is that going to distract people or not? What would be less distracting? That'd be something to think about. But um, I don't think it's essential. So what's the application for us today in 2023 in Manhattan, Kansas? Here's the application. Here's how we apply these theological truths, that men and women are equal in value but different in role. 
God made men and women different. He designed you that way. And when those differences are blurred, when those gender distinctions are blurred, something about that dishonors Christ. Your gender did not happen by accident. It was part of God's good design, and your gender should be celebrated. Your gender should be pursued. If you're a man, don't run from manhood. Don't hide from manhood. Pursue it. Embrace masculinity. If you're a woman, don't despise your womanhood. Don't apologize for it. The greatest thing about you as a woman is not that you can do everything that a man can do. The greatest thing about you as a woman is that you're a woman made in the image of God. Embrace womanhood. Pursue femininity. So one thing that makes this passage so hard today in our culture is to have a specific application is because there's no real gender distinction in our culture. So if So I think if you're a woman and you're trying to decide on a fashion choice or you're trying to decide on a haircut and you're not sure if it honors God, I think a good question for you is to think, do I want to dress this way because it's more masculine? And if the answer is yes, then then don't choose that choice. Men, if if you want long hair because you think it's cool, Go for it. If you want long hair because you, you want to be more feminine, don't do it. Embrace the distinction. So if gender distinction honors Christ, here's how I want to close. What does it mean to be masculine? If that honors Christ, what does that mean to be masculine? It's not about having short hair. It's not about loving football. It's not about being buff. I'll tell you this, men, look at me. There are a lot of short-haired football-loving guys that fail the masculine test. Here's how the Bible describes masculinity. In Genesis 2, it talks about leadership and responsibility. What does that look like? The greatest picture of masculinity that we have in the Bible, and I'm sorry this is in the context of marriage. We get it from Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says that husbands or the man should love the woman the way that Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. So the best picture that we have of masculinity is not short hair and buff. The greatest picture we have is a bloodied savior, a bloodied beaten savior hanging on a cross. That's our picture of masculinity. And that's what you as a young man should be pursuing every day. How can I lay my life down to help other people? How can I sacrifice my rights? How can I sacrifice my desires to help other people? That's masculinity. So what does that look like on your common Friday? In a normal day, how about this? When you go to eat with your friends, you think, I'm going to take the smallest piece of pizza. I'm going to take the piece of pizza with the least amount of meat on it. I'm going to take the corner brownie. I'm going to let somebody else have the middle one. I'm going to sacrifice what I want so somebody else can have it. Listen, you taking the corner brownie, men, that's a masculine move. I'm trying to think. 
I'm trying to think in like small things, like you can practice this every day. When I was in high school, like the thing was, I'd walk out of the house and it was like, we were racing to the front door to see who could call shotgun because every guy wanted to ride shotgun. Sometime in college, I quit calling shotgun because I was just like, what are we doing? Now, I want to sit in the least comfortable, worst seat in the car that I can manage so that somebody else can be comfortable. That's a masculine move. Get a job, make money so that you can bless other people. That's a masculine move. Now, I'm not saying, women, that you can't sacrifice for other people. That's not what I'm saying at all because God has told all of us as his followers, men and women, to take up our cross and to follow him daily. So that's good and beautiful for you to do the same thing. But when, when the Bible describes masculinity, they say, look to Jesus on the cross. That's a masculine move. What does it mean to be feminine? There's a story in Luke 7 where Jesus is leading a group of people. Did that turn off there? I don't know what to do. Jesus is leading a group of people, and um, they're walking towards a small town called Nain. And as Jesus is leading this group of people towards Nain, there's a group of people, Luke says in Luke 7, that are coming out of Nain, and it's also a crowd. There's two large crowds, and this crowd is full of hopelessness and despair. In fact, Luke says this is a funeral procession. And so at the head of this group, the, the, the only son of a widowed, a poor widowed woman died. So this was a scene of total hopelessness and despair. And no doubt, it would have been full of loud wailing and weeping. And so that's the crowd coming out of the city. And Jesus is coming with his crowd that's full of life and hope, and energy, and joy, and these two crowds are converging. And so at the head of this crowd is a dead body, and at the head of this crowd is Jesus, the Son of God, and Jesus takes his followers right into this crowd of hopelessness and despair, and no doubt that would have been really uncomfortable for his followers, and really inconvenient, and really kind of weird. And Jesus took them into this crowd of hopelessness and he brought hope to the despairing. And he brought that little boy to life. That's a picture of femininity. Because Paul says what it means to be feminine, again in the context of marriage, but you can pursue this outside of marriage, is for the woman to follow the man the way the church follows Christ. And that picture in Luke 7 is the, the, the best picture in my mind of the church. You see these people following Christ into the unknown in a courageous way, in a hope-filled way. So what can you do, women, to pursue femininity? Think, how can I be courageous and step into hopeless situations and despairing situations to, to bring courage and to bring inspiration and to bring beauty. That's a feminine move. So if you, if you see one of your friends totally stressed out and you come up and say, 
I see that you're really anxious and you're really stressed. Is there anything I can do for you today to take something off your plate so that I can help you? That's a feminine move. You're doing a really good job. I want to encourage you. You want to bring beauty and inspiration to somebody. That's a a feminine move. So I am over time. I I need to be done. I I just, I I, I want to say this to close. And and Sean, the worship team, you can come up here. I I don't want us to get weird about gender. That's that's to to, um, start idolizing gender. But I do want to be a people that honors gender distinctness, that God created us in how we act and even how we dress. Men, this world needs to see godly masculinity. Desperately needs to see that. And women, this world desperately needs to see godly femininity. So let's pursue it together. Let's pray. Father, we... We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your design, your good design, and I want to pray right now for the, the young men and women in this room who have never seen godly masculinity. They've seen masculinity that's been abusive. And they've seen masculinity that's been absent. They've seen masculinity that's been passive. And I pray for those students that you would help them to trust in your good design and that you would redeem that image in their heart. And I pray for those students that have never seen godly femininity, that all they've seen is just the objectification God, we pray for a great rescue to happen for the way that we think about sex, the way that we think about gender. And God, I pray that there would, that the believers on this campus would be so at peace with who you've created them to be in their bodies that their lives would be just like a walking testimony of your goodness oh God we long for there to be a celebration and a, and a peace and just a, an embracing of, of your design of your goodness so we could celebrate your authority and the way that you've made things that it brings peace that it brings healing, that it brings wholeness. So we just want to submit ourselves to you. We want to put our yes on the table to you. We want to just say that you are good. You are good. We love you and we love what you're about. We love what your kingdom's about. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.